Welcome to the College Scoops podcast. I'm your host, Moira McCullough, and today we are talking with Beth Pickett, who will share helpful tips for parents navigating the college admissions journey. You still want to get in the best possible application that you can, but it's not a matter of whether or not you're worthy. It has a lot to do with the institutional priorities. A lot of students have not faced something that they want so badly, and the colleges don't care how badly the student wants it. This is the College Scoops Podcast, and I'm your host, Moira McCullough. We focus on everything college-related, from the admissions process to where to eat, stay, and explore on and around campuses. Our guests include founders, educators, authors, and experts in the college space. Join us as these experts share their knowledge, experiences, and lessons learned to help you have stress-free, informative, and tasty college journeys. Whether it's your first or last child going to college, or you're just interested in going to a college town for a game or meal, we've got you covered. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the College Scoops podcast to get the inside scoops on everything college-related, and leave us a review. Thanks to all of our sponsors, partners, and the entire College Scoops ambassador team for helping us bring valuable content to our community. If you would like to support College Scoops as a sponsor, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash college scoops and sign up as a sustaining listener, insider, or deluxe sponsor. We have exclusive benefits for our members and even a College Scoops care package. Beth Pickett is the founder of College Prep Counseling and the author of the number one Amazon bestseller, College Admissions, The Essential Guide for Busy Parents. She's been working with students across the U.S. as a college admissions counselor for 15 years. Her clients and essay students have earned admission to Harvard, Yale, Brown, UCLA, Stanford, Williams, and many other colleges and universities across the U.S. A graduate of Stanford, Beth studied human and marine biology in college. She completed a postgraduate year of field, joining underwater expeditions with the National Geographic Society and the Cousteau Society, then working for Cousteau as a writer and editor. She went on to earn her certificate in college counseling from UCLA and started working with families as an independent admissions consultant in 2007. She began teaching summer essay writing seminars to 80-plus rising seniors annually, then leading a team of editors to review the essays and offer suggestions for improvement before they were submitted to the colleges. Beth is a member of the Higher Education Consultants Association and resides in the seaside town of Ventura, California with her two teenage boys. Welcome to the College Scoops podcast, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Moira. I'm so excited to be here. When I come back out to California, I've already made you promise me off record, but now I want it on record that you will be a crew on my boat if I end up doing some crazy swim from Manhattan Beach to Hermosa or to Catalina. Will you promise me that you will be on my boat? I promise. The boats out here in the channel off the coast of California, there are always dolphins. It's beautiful out here. So absolutely. Wouldn't miss it. You have such an interesting background. I'd love for you to share. When you were at Stanford, I've never heard of that program. Was it a program specifically for marine biology? Or can you share a little bit about that? So they don't have a marine biology program at Stanford. They do have Hopkins Marine Station, which is a satellite campus that has been there for 100 years or more, right on the Monterey Coast, next to which the Monterey Bay Aquarium was built the summer that I was at Hopkins. So my major at Stanford was human biology, which was a wonderful major that juxtaposed the hard sciences, biology and chemistry with the social sciences, 
So we would study things like in the 1960s when the U.S. government was sending powdered milk over to Africa to help their famine, and they were using it as paint for their fences because they can't digest milk. 80 to 90 percent of people of African descent can't digest milk after the age of two. They lack the enzyme. So it was this major issue where there's more to it than just the science. There's the human and the social aspect that you need to know. So putting those together is what the major was all about, which was so cool. But within the major, they let you have an what they call an area of concentration. And in mine, I did work in a lot of marine biology. So a summer at Hopkins, where we would scuba dive in the morning and the different habitats around Monterey Bay, you know, the kelp beds and the seagrass, all the different areas. And then we would come back and work in the lab in the afternoon, which was so much fun. I am not a science person, but I think the way you just described it, even with that fact about the African community, if I had been able to learn in that way, I probably would have loved science. So much fun. It was, in fact, that program was the reason I picked Stanford over some of the other colleges where I got into because it looked so interesting that I knew that I would have fun going through those classes and learning that material. But it reminds me though, at Hopkins, and I believe this is true for some of the other marine labs around the US. So USC has a marine lab on Catalina, the Wrigley Marine Science Center. Duke University has a marine lab. Students who are not necessarily enrolled in those colleges as undergraduates or graduate students can still go for some of those and apply for the summer at Hopkins and the summer at Wrigley. I'm pretty sure that you can apply to go even as sort of a visiting student from another college. But I was going to say getting boots on the ground. It's more like getting fins on your feet, (laughs) getting out there and talking to the people who are there as graduate student researchers, talking to the professors to find out more about really what is this profession all about? And is it something that the student would want to continue pursuing? And what are the different avenues in which they can do that? I mean, there are people that I know at National Geographic who are professional underwater photographers. They travel all over the world making unbelievable images or videographers or writing about diving or doing research in the lab. They don't have to necessarily get in the water. They can have graduate students go out and bring them samples if for whatever reason, scuba diving or being in the water is not what they want to do. So all sorts of different aspects of that that whole industry. Well, even if they don't want to be the researchers, so they're not great with the, the mathematical equations or something. There's other, as you said, you could be a great writer and write about it. And that's what you did, right? I mean, when you you did some writing for... Yes, for Custodia. And that's my first job out of college was with a scuba certification agency called PADI, the Professional Association yes. of Diving Instructors. And because I was working on their instructor magazines, writing about teaching diving, they decided, well, you need to become a scuba instructor. So off we're sending you off to get you certified as a diving instructor, which was great because at Stanford, I had taken scuba diving as a super, just a fun thing to do. I've always been comfortable in the water, happy in the water, loved that. But I remember, this is interesting, my scuba instructor at Stanford, when I had talked to her about, oh, maybe I could go be an instructor, she'd go, oh, you'll never be an instructor. I'm going to show you wrong. So at Patty, I got my instructor certification there. I ended up getting my instructor certification at NAWI, the National Association of Underwater Instructors as well. So I'm I'm double certified as an instructor. But in those days, in my early 20s, mid 20s, it was such a fun thing to do. Are you somebody who's more comfortable in the water than out of the water? I'm pretty comfortable in both. I don't have any of that anxiety. Some people either feel claustrophobic with the mask on or just afraid in the water. And I just feel relaxed and happy. I love swimming and I love open water swimming, but I have never scuba dived because that control 
issue with me. I'm so afraid of being restricted with my breath and not having control, although you do have control. But for any student who's interested in that major, you just mentioned a whole host of different programs that you could look at or areas of the profession, whether you could write for a magazine, you could be a photographer, a videographer. Was there any particular area that you absolutely loved and you thought, oh, if I have another chance to reinvent myself, I'm going to go back and do that? No, I mean, I always loved doing the underwater photography, but but I was never particularly good at it. It doesn't help when your friends work for National Geographic and they just make these amazing photographs. But that's always fun to do to capture that and share it with people who haven't been underwater. How did you then go from doing that to all of a sudden deciding, I want to help kids in the college process? The transition happened when I was working for Cousteau as a writer and editor. And when they closed the Los Angeles office, I was dating someone who eventually became my husband. And they were closing the LA office and moving it to Virginia. And I thought, this is not a time in my life when I want to be picking up and moving. I really loved working for them, but it's time to do something else. And another person who had been working at Cousteau in the video department started an educational video production company called Archipelago, which was then purchased by Harcourt. And so I bumped along with him, was working for Harcourt doing project management in the education sphere, because I'm kind of nerdy and geeky and I love learning things. And I like being around classes. What can we learn? What's going on at that university? So a colleague of mine came to me when her son was getting ready to apply to college. He had gone to his guidance counselor at his high school and said, I really want to go to an Ivy League university. Can you help me? And she said, oh, no, no one from our school has ever gotten into one of those. Don't even bother to apply. And I'm like, what? So I knew I didn't have the training to help him through all of it, but I had been through selective college admissions myself and I knew I could help him with his essays. So I worked with him on his essays. He ended up at Cornell and I thought, I love this. I love working with the students, helping them figure out what they might want to do, but I didn't feel qualified to hang out a shingle. So I went to UCLA, got my certificate in college admissions counseling and opened my doors in 2007. Wonderful. And then you just wrote a book geared to busy parents. Why did you write that? Because not everyone knows that there are people who do what I do that can help either one-to-one or in group sessions or with online classes, but parents are super confused. They want to be able to help. Most of them don't necessarily want to take it over. So they're trying to figure out what do we do? When should we do it? And how can I help without overstepping? I want my students to own this process, but not just be sent out into the wild blue yonder with no guidance. It doesn't help if they have no guidance because number one, college is crazy expensive right now. And it is probably the most typical error that I see families make is not figuring out the financial outlook at a particular college before the student applies. They pick the colleges where the student will apply and they wait until spring to get financial aid offers. And if you don't pick your colleges well ahead of time, you may get offers that don't make financial sense for the family. But families don't know how to look at the financials ahead of time. And it's counterintuitive, which is a problem. And I say it's counterintuitive because the Ivy League colleges or some of the private colleges are 80,000 a year. My state college is 35,000 a year. Therefore, the state college will be less expensive. It seems to make sense. But what it doesn't take into account is that number one, at some of the state colleges, it can take you five or six years to get out. That is the case for a lot of the state colleges here where I live in California. The other thing is that the private colleges often have great financial aid, either need-based aid or merit-based aid. And the parents have to go in 
they don't have to. It is best if they go in knowing if they're looking for need-based aid, that's one set of colleges. If they're looking for merit-based aid, it's pretty much a different set of colleges. Those are the colleges that should be on their students' list. Not just, oh, all my friends went to so-and-so university. That's where I'm applying and not understanding where that might land the family financially. I don't want my students to be in debt when they're 45 or their parents not to be able to retire. So we have that conversation very early on so that they don't get into a situation where they're stuck with bad options. They've been admitted, but they can't really afford it. So that was one of the first things that you had seen in all the work that you've done with families in terms of just the disappointment of the student realizing that they were not in a place that financially they could have afforded. Their list wasn't financially sound and that disappointment that happened too late in order for them to kind of make decisions that they would have been happy about. Right. And sometimes the parents just say, well, we'll find a way to make it happen. But that's when you get into the whole debt cycle. I do have one student this past year and her parents just hadn't gone through the process to figure it out. She got into the University of Michigan. She couldn't afford it. She had to say no. She loved the University of Michigan. I'm glad she's not getting into debt. She can go to the University of Michigan. She can apply as a graduate student when she might be over 24 and qualify for more aid based on her own income and not her parents or whatever. But she had younger siblings. So you need to look at the big picture. How many students are coming up through the family? Is the student looking at graduate school? It's not all about just the four years of the undergraduate. So helping the families see the bigger pictures is something I really try to do. And so with that in mind, kind of your ability to continue to coach parents through that and seeing these common mistakes that parents make just because they don't know. And it's there's so much information out there. It's almost exhausting thinking exactly. about it. So I know myself going through it, it, you just almost look at it and you think, I'll think about that tomorrow. I have one student who I was talking to yesterday and we counted. I said, okay, you've got 12 essays to write. He goes, oh, 12 essays. That's so many. I'm yeah. like, actually, that's not very many. I have other students who have 30 essays to write, which is why we try to get them done in the summer. So writing those essays at the time that the student is the rising senior, that's the hardest part. The GPA is already done. Their testing should already be done for the SAT and the ACT. Those essays are difficult. But if they are going to have that writer's block, I don't know what I'm going to write about. I would rather have that hit in mid-July then hit in mid-October when the deadlines for some are due November 1st. It doesn't get any easier when they wait, but it's really easy to kick it down the road because it's difficult. So just like the Absolutely. parents, the students are going, oh, I'll deal with it later. And I'm back here saying, mm -mm, we need to deal with it now and get through it. So was that, again, kind of like you just started gathering all these common frustrations that parents had and that students had and just thought, I'm repeating myself time and time again. And these families, I feel for them because they're getting into situations that are not recoverable, that if addressed earlier could have helped them. And there's a lot of people that can't afford also, you know, independent educational consultants and that are going to their high school college counselors. Did that factor into with why you like distilled all this information into this? I don't even know how many pages, 150, 200 page book. <laughs> it's about 200 pages. So the idea behind the book was that it is enough information that the parents can read it like a chapter. Okay, my student has to ask for letters of recommendation. What do we need to know? Here are 15 pages on that. Got it. This is what we need to do. A, B, and C, go. As opposed to some of the wonderful books that are out there, but that are more academic, that are talking about research papers. They get so in the weeds that it's easy to get lost. So I was trying to keep it to the core information that you need to know 
It doesn't go into every single detail for every single college about nuances that, yes, college counselors know, but it's enough to get them to feel that they can confidently move forward. And then if they need to know more about any specifics, they'll know where to go to get that. They'll have an idea of what questions even to ask. That was what I was going to say. It kind of gives you some background information, informs you of here are these categories of content or requirement criteria that is required. And at a high level, here's the different steps or the timelines. You go through that as well in each chapter, the timelines, and then helpful resources where you can get that. But now you're knowledgeable enough to go out and ask a high school college counselor or an admissions person about financial need or early decision applications. Exactly. Exactly. These are the core pieces of information so that you are informed enough that if you want more information, you can ask good questions without it being overwhelming. I have sat in on other, the high schools or other counselors talking about, for example, financial aid. They go through so much and they get so into the weeds so quickly about Stafford loans or subsidized and unsubsidized loans. So I have one chapter in the book is all about financial aid and here's what to do. Step one, step two, step three. These are the things you you need to know. Your EFC, and they're changing the name of the EFC, which is your expected family contribution and how this is calculated and just things to think about so that it is understandable and actionable for the parents so that they don't feel overwhelmed and they don't feel like they're floating around on the web, getting some information that's accurate and some that they really don't know whether it's accurate or not. Absolutely. Well, I also think that there's certain areas where parents definitely need to get involved earlier then later. And we, that's really the financial fit. I mean, as yeah. you said, it's kind of backwards. I mean, if you think about it, you don't go looking for a home in Hollywood. Yes. If you can't afford something that's not over you know, 1.5. So in a lot of ways, you have to have the information that you need in order to shop different higher ed institutions that are yes. in your price range. Yes. Or- not all that long ago, a student could work over the summer and contribute maybe 10%. When they said, he can go wherever he wants. We'll make it work. But right. now we're looking at eighty dollars to $85,000 a year times four years. Really? That's a Absolutely. lot of money for an undergraduate education. Some families can do that without a problem. Most can't. If they qualify for a lot of need-based aid, they're going to be in good shape. The Ivy Leagues don't give one dime of merit money to anybody. Not athletic scholarships, not no merit money. So if you're in that category where you're going to be a full pay family, you could get a ton of help at less selective colleges that may be wonderful colleges, but that will give your student a lot of money. It's not going to be the Ivy League. Right. If you have a lot of need and your student is qualified and can get into an Ivy League college, they will cover no loans, great need-based aid. It may end up being less than the state college. There's that juxtaposition of, well, we think it's going to be less expensive because the cost of attendance or the sticker price is less. It doesn't always work out that way. You've got to run the numbers. It's not fun to run the numbers, but it'll save you a ton of money if you run the numbers. Absolutely. So that's the first piece. If you had two other areas that you would say to, again, first-time parents or even parents going through it the second or third time, it's always so different with each and every student because they are unique in their own ways. So is there any other area that you would say focus on as a parent? A little bit. There are a lot of pieces of the admissions puzzle that need to come together just at the right time in order for the student to be able to hit that submit button before the deadline. Those deadlines are rock solid. I had a student submit an optional extra graded paper 17 seconds late after the deadline and they wouldn't accept it. 
Now, I don't like my students to go that quite close to the deadline. And luckily he got into his college anyway, but 17 seconds. So those deadlines are quite hard. Hard and fast. Yes. There's a whole chapter in here about why your high school counselor is so critically important in this process and how to keep that person happy with you so that they are helping you from their end. The letters of recommendation, something called demonstrated interest, which a lot of families have never heard of, but is very important for many of the private colleges that are weighing whether or not to offer your student admission if they're not really convinced that your student will, will actually enroll. We have a couple of little tips and tricks that can help with Perfect. So demonstrated interest is really letting the college know that you truly are interested. You're not just filling out an application and sending it in to see what happens. You know the college quite well. There is usually an essay for these colleges. Why our college? And you have to be very specific. I had one student that I've had to redirect because he said, well, I really want to get out of California for college. No, I need you to tell me that you want to take Professor A's class called blah, 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 so that you can continue what you started in high school at the college campus as you're majoring in this and that. And when you're not in school, you're going to do this specific thing. It's so specific, it will make your head spin because they don't want, you can't just say, I want to go to college in Boston. There are 35 colleges in Boston. I want to attend Emerson because they have the Emerson. Emerson Channel, and I could learn to make television production and really, really specific. So the demonstrated interest part of that is showing up if the college's representative is making a visit to the student's high school. It's visiting the campus. If it's within about a four-hour drive of your home, they aren't going to expect that a student from New York is going to visit a college in Washington State. They won't penalize you for not having visited. But if you can visit, that shows demonstrated interest. Of course, the, the most important demonstrated interest is early decision where you're committing to go to a college if they let you in. Certain colleges really love their early decision students. So anytime you can make a connection, emailing the representative about with a question about something, attending their online virtual information sessions. And for the parents, opening the email for the student to double check. So I was just saying that the opening up the email and then I think clicking through because it shows again, you're curious, you want to learn more. I think that's very, very helpful as well. And they track that. That's what a lot of parents don't realize is that the colleges are saying, huh, did that student open any of our emails? Oh, they opened all our emails and they clicked on the links and they went to spend time on our website. They are tracking all of that stuff. Now, most of my students, they would rather text. They're really not as used to going on to email as the parents are. And so if the student has an email address that is only used for college applications that the parents can access anytime, mom or dad can go in and open all the emails and follow all the links. And then if there's something that the student really does need to know about, pass that on to the student. Help the student keep track of that. The other thing that the parents can help with are the spreadsheets. I was mentioning all these different pieces and parts have to come together at the same time. Unless a student has really done like a gold award project for Girl Scouts or an Eagle Scout project, a giant project with lots of little pieces, this is something really new. And they may not have a way to organize it and keep track of things. And it can just be chaotic if it's not properly managed. So helping the student, if they're not used to using spreadsheets, learn to use a spreadsheet, learn how to track this, not doing it for them, but showing them, helping them develop that skill. I think in all reality with what students have on their plate right now, I mean, it's unwieldy if you think about it. And there's areas, as you just described, that was something that I really like doing. I like spreadsheets. I'm good at it. I like organizing. And 
in all realities, when some people would say, oh, my kids schedule their own tours and information sessions, I think that's awesome. They don't necessarily know what is the family calendar and they're planning it on days that don't coincide with a parent or somebody being able to go with them on that particular visit. I found that and then just lining everything up because I also think for the students, it organizes it in a framework where they could say, if a college had X number of supplementals, like I don't want to go through all that. Well, there you go. That might not be the one that you want on your list if you don't want to put in the work that's involved to apply to that school. So it kind of helps gauge from a student perspective of what they're willing to do in order to apply and for parents to focus their energy on areas that are really not a strength of the students. Mm -hmm. But so that's really, really important that the student ideally will start their applications with those target and likely schools, because then if they run out of steam and they're trying to apply to one of the Ivy Leagues or something with a three or 4% acceptance rate, and they don't want to do those five essays for that college, they still will have everything done for those target and likely schools. In other words, if they start with those, they can burn out really easily putting all their energy into those ones that are not likely statistically to work out, even if the student is valedictorian with high test scores and GPA. So balancing that with early decision and what is due November 1st and what is due January 1st and mapping it out on a calendar so that if they do have 30 essays, okay, you have 30 essays to do, you have 10 weeks to do it. We're on three essays per week. You know, the way you structured everything, it also gives parents an aerial view of my gosh, this is not a sprint. And here are all the requirements that the student will have. So help them to organize themselves in a time frame where they're going to be successful. And you know your student best in terms of their areas of strengths and weaknesses. I think that was really important, like looking at it and knowing there's a lot that goes into it. And there's some that you can have wiggle room for deadlines. And there's others, as, as you have just described, there is none. So look at what's required, look at your own family calendar and schedule academic year for that student and where you might need to focus your energies earlier rather than later, right? Right. And also, if you're not working with an independent educational consultant, there's someone who will help your family on weekends and evenings and over the holidays, the student has to get all this stuff done. If the deadlines are January 1st and the high school counselors are gone on vacation the last two weeks of December for winter break, they don't have anyone to turn to if they have a question. Get that stuff done early so that you don't end up having questions and know where to turn. I do really like what you said in terms of regardless of the help that you get from an independent educational consultant, your parents, the college counselor is really important because without them, there's critical information that they can only come from them. So walk in, get to know them. That person at the high school is responsible for sending the high school profile, which you can Google for any particular high school, students' transcript, signing off if they're applying early decision. This really can't happen without their buy-in and without them being on time too. But remember, especially at the public high schools, they have a crazy hundreds of students Not all of them may be applying to the selective four-year colleges, but they have a lot of work to do over fall. So they are going to be trying to attend to everyone's needs. It's a difficult task that they're taking on. So helping them by keeping them informed of what the deadlines are, where the student is applying, they just have such a critical role in the whole process. I also think it should be fun. You are spending a lot of money. And I think going into it and saying, you get to pick a place that you want to call home for the next four years, 
what do you want that to look like? Who do you want those friends to be? And what do you want to do outside the classroom? If you have that type of mentality, you think about it. You never get to go shopping with that big price tag. I mean, I try to tell the students and relate to the parents as well. If you have an idea of what you want to do beyond college, you will find all sorts of different routes to get where you want to go. And no one particular college can say, no, we don't have room for you this year. Therefore, your life plan is not going to pan out the way you want it to. I don't want them to feel like their self-worth is wrapped up in some admissions committee that has right. never met them, that may be looking for more students from Arkansas and the student is from Wyoming, especially at the super selective colleges. They have more qualified, academically qualified students who are applying than they can admit. So the nuances of, wow, we needed a tuba player and you play the piccolo. You still want to get in the best possible application that you can, but it's not a matter of whether or not you're worthy. It has a lot to do with the institutional priorities. A lot of students have not faced something that they want so badly and that the colleges don't care how badly the student wants it. I would do anything to go to XYZ college. I love this college. Yes, there's demonstrated interest and they would want to know that you would attend, but wanting it badly is not enough. That's no. not the priority of the colleges. Well, I also think though, too, and we talked about this earlier in terms of the names and the pressure, social pressure of certain colleges. And I think even as a parent looking at the admissions process and, and the guidance that you have. And students looking at it, you could come away and say, you know what, I'm not ready right now. And maybe community college is, is the right move for me and maybe a gap year. So I think knowledge is very powerful and it allows you to self-reflect and kind of know yourself a little bit more and what you want. And parents hopefully will be able to support that student if they can articulate and kind of justify. Yes. I mean, if the parents are only taking the student to see Harvard, Yale and Princeton, and none of the colleges that are the target and the likely, there's a very clear message that may be unspoken to that student that those other colleges are not worthwhile and nothing can be further from the truth. One of those other colleges may be the best fit for your student to do well academically, emotionally, socially, all of those, as opposed to one of the ones with a single digit acceptance rate. The other thing right. I've noticed that families where the parents have gone to college themselves haven't realized quite how selective the colleges have become even since COVID because the applications are up now that a lot of colleges are test optional. So a family who says, well, it doesn't have to be the Ivy League, but Duke would be okay. Do you know that they're the single digit acceptance rates? So many colleges, their acceptance rates have gone down so much. The colleges that some families might think are target or likely are absolutely not. It's really changed. Just even between my kids with the two years spread, I mean, night and day from what, 2020, yep. 2021 graduating and two years later. I mean, it's really hard. I think the most important thing too, I, I would say it as a parent, I'm, and I'm not sure where I read this, and but we all say this, it is your student going and they really have to buy in. And the worst thing is to get to a college and have to transfer for reasons that yeah. you could have uncovered, or maybe there was too much pressure from parents or from others about certain schools. And I think that's where College Scoops all comes in about the social fit and really trying to connect with that current community to get a better feel and vibe. Are these my people? And are mm -hmm. these the ones that I'm going to want to live with, eat with, and hopefully have long lasting friendships with, which is really important. Beth, you provided so much 
information. There's so much out there. And I think that's the whole point. You could waste hours and hours and be exhausted from all the research out there. So I think having it distilled down into chapters and being able to reflect over and go back, I think whether you're a sophomore parent, junior parent, or senior parent, you'll be able to pick up really helpful information throughout. So we always like to ask our guests two last questions. What do you wish you knew before attending college? Having been the kind of student who wanted to hit that academic level to get into Stanford, I wish I had relaxed a little more and not worried about getting A's all the time and been willing to take some classes that I may not have done quite so well in academically, but taken on that challenge of learning it, even if I might've gotten B or C. God help us. <laughs> so yeah, I think that would probably be open to trying something that might really challenge you. Rise to the occasion if you can, to the best of your ability. I mean, you just hear what you said in the beginning. I love that. Having somebody tell you that you couldn't possibly pass a scuba diving certification. I love that. When somebody tells you no, I'm always game on. I'll prove you wrong. So I think it's always helpful and healthy to have that type of attitude. We are all about food here. Any particular dessert or food spot that you love on a college campus in the surrounding community. I'm all about it can be right. Um, Peninsula Creamery is where we tended to go. And it's still there in Palo Alto for, of course, the shakes and all the the ice cream stuff, but the burgers and just hanging out. Oh, I love that. I mean, what's not to like about that? A milkshake. It tastes as good as when you were 17 as it does when you're it my age. Effect on the on the physique at uh, <laughs> these days. It does, but that's why we swim or scuba dive to just work it off or walk. <laughs> there you go. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a fun conversation. I appreciate it, Moira. Thank you, Beth, for enlightening both parents and students on the world of college admissions and how families can navigate this process in a smart and safe manner. Before applying to a college, parents should make sure their student will be in a financially sound situation. If you are applying for financial aid, try to understand exactly what that aid is doing or not doing for the student. In the end, the college admissions process is not merit-based. Rather, it depends on the priorities of the institution. Students should not base their self-worth on whether they get admitted or not. It is more important that their college experience is academically, socially, and emotionally fulfilling. In the end, Students should feel that the school that they are attending is the best fit for them, regardless of prestige or ranking. You can find all of our show notes and links to the helpful resources mentioned throughout our conversation on our website at collegescoops.com slash podcast. You can learn more about Beth at collegeprepcounseling.com. Please take a couple of minutes to rate, review, and subscribe to College Scoops. Thank you for listening to our College Scoops podcast. Our entire College Scoops team strives to make the college journey a little bit easier, less stressful, fun, and tasty by sharing all the inside scoops we have curated along the way. We would love to hear from you about topics to cover and your ideas on everything college related. Reach out to us at collegescoops.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.